This is the Tribune Audio Network. Hi. Hi. Oh, we did it in sync. Oh, shit. <laughs> Welcome to Sip. Survive. And repeat. Don't you dare. Uh, I'm not. I'm don't not. You do, dare I'm not going to introduce name. who I am. I'm not. You guys can guess. Figure guess, it out. Guess based on my Cleveland accent. <laughs> um, okay. So we have exciting news. Whoop, whoop, whoop. It's uh, huge. Huge. Um, <laughs> Danelle and I went to a wine boutique and we have forged a partnership. So we now have uh, some really fun wines coming your way. So um, I will tell you about it. Hold on. I'm going to open their website so I don't mess it up. (laughs) Uh, So it's the Magna Wine Boutique, and it's in historic Bedford, Ohio. So if you guys haven't been, it's a real cute little area. And they are um, in a a winery. They don't make the wine there but they curate wines from all over and they're like wines that you won't find at your grocery store. Even your like special like grocery store that has lots of great wines. Like these are very different. Like hand selected. Yeah. Off the beaten path wines. So um, we talked to, they have a sommelier who is there. Her name's Laura. I'm going to try and say her last name. I'm going to guess Sicarelli. That's what I was going to say. Which okay, exactly good. it. <laughs> or I was going to say Chacharelli, which is not, which is not <laughs> it. <laughs> um, so she did a tasting with us and she's the sweetest. And um, Brittany, who is, I think, one of the owners or, or the owner, I'll have to ask her if she's sharing that or if that's just her. I think her it's her or... and her husband. I think it's like that's a what it co- kind of sounded like. Yeah. Yeah. Like her and her husband, a dual ownership. Yeah. So um, just like the nicest, sweetest people. Um, just like doing this for the love of wine, which is why we love wine. Cause we love it. <laughs> um, we, me and Danelle tried five different wines and some of them were really different. Out of our like, comfort zone. A yeah. Bit. We were like, she started pouring the first wine and I was like, this uh-uh. is going to be terrible. What is wrong with you, ma'am? What is wrong with you, Laura? But Laura was right. She was right in giving us this first wine and she had lots of reasons for it. So yeah. Um, I'll tell you that wine, me and Danelle, we tried to get, they are out of it right now, but it was a pineapple wine. And I know some of you who are real wine drinkers are like, you, that's not wine if you put fruit in it, but I'm telling you, it was delicious. It was heaven. And, and it wasn't I'm, too sweet. No, like, it, it wasn't, wasn't like a sweet wine. No, it wasn't like a fruit wine that you think of. It was like a white wine with like this aftertaste of pineapple that made it tasted like summer. It was so good. And I don't even like white wine. Like I was like, I'm, I wanted to buy it. So anyway, we're waiting for the well, next we did buy to come it. in. Yeah. Yes. We bought so we everything essentially. Yeah. <laughs> everything she gave us, we were like, we'll take a bottle of that. Yeah. Thank and you. then some, um, I also <laughs> liked that she gave us pairing options. So she said the pineapple wine would go great with like tacos or like Mexican food. Cause it was real light and crisp. It was, yes. just, they were just so knowledgeable. And I loved that everything there you can't get anywhere else. Like I've been looking into wine clubs and it's hard to find one that doesn't have like, no offense, but doesn't have like generic wines where I can just go to the grocery store down the street and get those wines. Right. And these are just hand, hand selected, picked. And I just, they were phenomenal. I love them. Yes. So 
Um, they have a tasting room, so you can do tastings there. Um, they have different events, and they also will do private tastings if you're interested in that. Um, it is big enough where you can do a tasting and socially distance as needed. So that was the other thing I wanted to mention. Um, if you are in Ohio and you want to try and go here, um, but it might be worth it to call ahead and get a reservation. So uh, you can go to their website. It's magnawineboutique.com. Um, and our goal with all of this is that we are going to be testing out some of their wines from their wine club. Um, and that way, once they launch their wine club, because they're a really new wine boutique, they just launched uh, in April, which of course was right when the pandemic was at its, well, yeah. at the time at its worst. <laughs> now it's, it's worse again, but it's fine, whatever. Um, but they just launched their store. And um, so they're launching the club, they said, probably in the month of August, which we just entered. So stay tuned. We'll give you all the details as soon as we have them. Um, like I said, we're going to be uh, taste testing some of the wines um, each month and giving you uh, tasting notes, pairing notes, that sort of thing. Um, and that's all compliments of our friend, Laura, who uh, we couldn't do this without. <laughs> So thanks, Laura. So thank you. <laughs> yes. And Brittany, thank you for being such an open and amazing businesswoman um, because she just, you know, loved the idea of partnering with us. And um, God, just such a cute store. I just can't say it enough. is. Ador I know it was super cute and adorable. And I'm really excited for them. I think it's going to be they're going to be super successful. And I think there's something different, you know. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I am drinking one of the wines that I actually purchased from them. So I was going to do a little, uh, synopsis of that. Uh, and then I think Danelle's drinking one of their wines too. Yes, I sure am. Okay. I've been talking a long time. So why don't you go first and tell okay. me about what you're drinking? Great. So I don't have notes, um, from our friends at Magna Wine, but so I'm going to do my own a little synopsis, which I'm sure will be very elegant. Um, Love this it. is a Pinot Noir and this is the one, one of the ones I purchased from them that was not one of the ones we tasted. Mm -hmm. And I really liked the label. It's, it has like a bull on the front of it and mm. it's from Moldova, okay. uh, which there's a story behind it and I'm going to botch the story, but I'm going to try. So, Apparently, wine was um, back when, like, the USSR took over Russia or what Russia is today. Uh, they banned wine. So they did, like, a bootleg wine thingamajigger in these caves in Moldova. And this wine came from that. And then when Russia emerged as it is today where they can sell wine, then the winery kind of, like, came about and is still running to this day. So this wine kind of dates back to that period when wine was, or all alcohol was, was banned and they went underground to mm. develop this wine and keep it going. And I'm sure, um, the story is, uh, much more interesting if I had all the elements, right. Which I think I will have, um, I'm going to try, I'm going to do this one again. I'll taste it again and then ask for all the actual like factual information from her, but, um, it's delicious. It's a Pinot Noir. Um, it's called Sapervini. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, but, um, really good, very light, um, but also really bold at the same time. It's just delicious. So we'll, I'll send you a picture, Jenny, and we can post it. Nice. I like that. Um, well, I'm drinking, I just opened, uh, my bottle of the owl and the dust devil. Um, 
So I was really excited about this one. It was actually the only, well, I guess we count the, that one at the end, but it was really one of the only red wines we tried, um, which was shocking to me that I liked so many of the other ones. Uh, but the Owl and, and the Dust Devil, Laura gave us this beautiful story of um, how the wine got its name. And it's because um, where this is grown, I think in Mendoza, yes, uh, which is in Argentina, I think. Mm, I should have looked that That sounds up. about right. That sounds right, right? Okay. Yeah. So they have these vineyards and... Um, there are big owls that protect the vineyards from, um, you know, little creatures that are trying to eat the grapes. So they are um, like circling the, uh, the whole area where the grapes are being grown. Well, then there's also these dust devils, which is just like a big dust ball, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that roll through. Well, the owl um, thinks that it's something trying to hurt the grapes. So the owl kind of dances with the dust devil in this like beautiful, um, you know, swirling dance. So the label is like an owl and a dust devil. And it's like, they're almost dancing together. Uh, so it's a really beautiful story. Laura tells it way better. Um, she's just very eloquent with her. She really is. Yeah. <laughs> I is. sounded like such a dope compared to her telling it. But I think that's why people like us because we are a little dopey, but it's fine. Yeah. Well, you um, did a great job. Thank you. Uh, so it's like a blend of Cabernet Sauvignon, Malbec, Petit Verdot, and Tanat. Tanat? I don't know. T-A-N-N-A-T. I'll have to ask her about that. Um, so the Cabernet is what gives its backbone. The thing I like about this and that she pointed out, it has a very like earthy undertone to it. So you can almost mm -hmm. like taste the earthiness um, of the grapes. And this vintage was a 2015 and it had a little bit higher acidity. Um, and so they said it's a little bit more elegant than its predecessor. So I guess it's a little bit lighter than the predecessor is what I take for more elegant, but who knows? Um, but anyway, it's a very delicious red blend. Red blends are kind of my jam. Um, if you guys are interested, uh, they do have this and a lot of these bottles that they have at the store, they do have in limited quantity. So if you are looking for something specific that we're drinking, just call and um, or reach out via email and see if they have it uh, in stock. If not, I know that they're willing to uh, talk to their suppliers and get them in. So um, anyway, big thanks to Magna Wine Boutique for partnering with us in our wine endeavors. Yep. Great job. Yay. Thank you. Okay. Uh Okay, um, who wants we talk to about go survival? first? Yeah, let's get in it. Okay. Um, I don't know. Do you want to go first? I know you like to go first. I mean, I can. Is it getting a little stale, though? I mean, what do you think, Kenny? Uh, whoever wants to go first, I say go for it. All right, I'll go. Fine, twist my arm. Okay. Fine. <laughs> Mine's, mine is a little short. And, okay. Uh, I did get it from our favorite source, Jenny. The mm. good old... RD, Reader's Digest. Yeah, you um, did. I also did look up some other sources for information. Um, mm -hmm. But it's so funny when we're writing these stories. Like, 
everybody just keeps, everyone just copies off like Reader's Digest or like one main source. Have you noticed that? So it's all like yeah. the same information regurgitated. Yeah. The like world I'll we find live in today. Exa- I'll find like an exact quote from yeah. an article in like Wikipedia. I'm like, wait, who copied who? I'm so confused. I'm so, so confused, but I'm going to give all the credit to Reader's Digest just because okay. I, I love like stealing from them. Okay. So this is the survival story of Curtis Whitson. And his son, Hunter, and girlfriend, Crystal, spelled with a K, which I can appreciate. Um, (laughs) Shout out to Crystal Diamond with a C. Okay. So Curtis is 44 years old. And it's so funny. Like, this part I took from a different story. And as I was, like, copying and pasting this, I was like, the way the sentence is written out, it just makes it so like our culture is so defines us by what we do for a living if that makes sense so like this is the first sentence of this article that i copy and pasted it says curtis 44 a self-employed glass and door repair man his girlfriend a bartender and his son who is in ninth grade like i get we want to know their careers but it's weird that it like started out the story like that anyway right let me you jump back into readers it. digest loves to be thorough I know. And I love a good thorough backstory. I understand. But it just it's weird to me that like we identify as a society with what we do for a living so much. Anyway, yeah. that's my rabbit hole. That's my rant for today. So <laughs> Curtis, he's 44. He's self-employed, like I just said. Um, blue collar job. Um, his girlfriend, Crystal. I didn't really find out like how long they've been dating, how serious they were, but um she's 35. And his son is in ninth grade. So this is back in June of, I think, uh, 2019. But that's when the article was written. Well, the article was written in March 2020. And they referenced 2019 somewhere. So I'm going to guess it's in 2019. Anywho. So this is in California. They live in California. And it was Father's Day weekend. And they had planned a trip for the three of them to go uh, rafting. And this was a river that Curtis was familiar with. He's rafted this river about 20 times. And Mm -hmm. it's called the um, Arroyo Seco River in California. So it's a territory of a main river that runs uh, north and south up through the middle of California. Uh, Not a territory. I'm sorry. A tributary. So it's like an offset (laughs) of a river. (laughs) It's like a river from another river anyway. A brother it's from about, another mother. It's a brother from another river. Um, it's 40 miles. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, it's pretty, it seems like it's a pretty crazy river, like lots of like waterfalls and shit like that. Okay. Um, so it's kind of off the beaten path and Curtis loves it because there's a lot of, you can float a lot of the river, like before it gets like, you know, they have certain areas that you can raft, but then there's a lot, a lot of areas where you can just chill and float. Um, there's, it's not very crowded. And he said they were looking forward to camping and just getting away with, you know, without a bunch of people around. It was a four day trip that they had planned. And again, he had taken this trip many times by himself. So he was pretty confident in his skill set. Uh, the first night went perfectly as planned they built a campfire. They had pan-fried steak, which sounds amazing over a fire. Mm-hmm. And, and they had other things and just, like, sat under the stars and enjoyed themselves. Um, the second night also went well. So all day of their, you know, rafting. And, and there was some climbing, too. Um, but on the third day, which is the most difficult part of the trip, I guess, um, things went 
wrong. So on the third day, I guess, and Kenny, you're a climber, like you like rock climbing. So maybe you'll understand this more than, than I do, but for part of this, for this part of the river, there is a 40 foot waterfall. And typically when you reach this part of the river, there is a, uh, you have to rappel down rocks to continue down the river. So I'm assuming you like throw your rafts over maybe the river, the waterfall. And then there is a, um, a metal thing. And again, I don't know the technical term for it that you, that has a rope through it ready for you. And you can easily rappel down. It takes like 15 minutes. Typically like Curtis said in the past, it would take him 15 minutes to get down. Um, and this is like the most dangerous part of the river because it's a 40 foot raging waterfall. Um, it doesn't sound safe. It doesn't sound terrible. Pretty. I I think I would think as his girlfriend, I would be like, "Mm, I'm good. I'm going to hard pass on this, but you know, (laughs) it, it, it has always worked for him in the past. So, um, when they get to this part of the river, the, uh, they had had a really bad spring, meaning lots of rain, lots of snow in the mountains. So the river was really high, higher than expected. And as they were coming up on the waterfall portion, Curtis knew very quickly they were in trouble. Um, he was like, there's no way we can repel down these rocks because where the, uh, the metal hook was, and that's not what it's called, but whatever, that the rope goes through to, for you to repel down Wait, was gone. Was it the carabiner? It didn't, no, it didn't give me like a term. It called... Um, okay, I'm just see. saying the little hooky thing that has like the hooky that you, the carabiner is usually what they're called. And I used to, I used I to think rock climb in college. A metal hook. Fine. If, what's Whatever. it called, Kenny? Carabiner is what you would put on the metal hook or like the rock, I believe. The okay. one that's in the, in the rock, I don't Yeah, know. it's already in the rock. Like it's okay. installed in the rock and okay. like already set up. So I, I maybe the carabiner is what they attach to the rope, right? Yeah, that's what they attach ropes and hooks with. So he would have had his carabiner with him. Mm. Perfect. I mean, if anyone is super into rock climbing and they're listening to this, they're like screaming at us right now. I love it. I love it. (laughs) So (laughs) he quickly knew that they were in trouble and the, the whole like metal hook thing or whatever was gone because the water had risen above it. Like there was no way to get to it. Mm -mm. Um, And there was no way to climb out of the gorge because they were in, you know, a river with very high valleys. There's no way to get out. So they were trapped, essentially. Yes. And yes. So they had to make a decision. Um, he did pack extra gear. But again, it was the, the water was moving so fast. And to rappel down it would have been super dangerous for... <clears throat> he probably would have done it on his own or tried to. But with his son and, and girlfriend with him, it just wasn't going to happen. Mm. So... Um, you know, they realize at this point that their journey has stopped and they, um, at first he was like, okay, we got to think of something. So they went back upstream about 30 minutes because there's no really nowhere really to like pull off to the side or anything. So they went back upstream and found like a little beach area. And he was like, okay, so no, wait, stop. Forget that part. That didn't happen yet. So they're still at the water. <laughs> They're still at the waterfall area. <clears throat> okay. So he takes a log and he has a knife and he type he types. He writes in the log, we need help. He carves in the log, we need help, and throws it over the waterfall. And he notices that it doesn't get very far. Like it gets caught in like 
it doesn't even make it over the waterfall. It gets caught in this like circular whatever. And he's like, shit, that's not going to work. Um, he's like, I got to come up with a plan B. So um, they also don't have any cell service. And um, in this land to this mountainous range, there's mountain lions, there's rattlesnakes. There, It's just not a good situation to be in. They also noticed that during their whole trip, they really didn't see any other people. They're kind of like the only ones out here. So there yeah, wasn't like, it probably there, wasn't like good it probably conditions wasn't to be doing this shit. <laughs> right. So there wasn't anyone like coming down the river behind them. So he had to come up with another strategy and he noticed, he was like, Oh my God, I have a water bottle, which is a little risky because you might need that water bottle to fill up with water to drink. But so he took his water bottle and his girlfriend actually had a pen and paper and she wrote a note on a piece of paper that said, um, we are stuck here at the waterfall. Please get help. And they wrote the date. And then they closed up the water bottle. And then they wrote on the water bottle to help. And um, he was like, this is our only attempt to, he's like, I had to make it over the narrow passageway, which I didn't make with the log. And so he just chucked it over down the river and it made it, it, you know, it made it over the narrow passageway down the waterfall. And he said he silently prayed to the universe for somebody downstream to find it. So he wasn't, you know, he was just like, I'm just going to throw this water bottle over and hope that it works. So he, they did tell other people that they were going on this trip. So he knew at some point they, people would come looking for them. They just didn't know how long it would take and how long it would also take to find them. So, um, they also tried to yell and scream, but the waterfall was so loud. You couldn't, you know, no one could hear you over the, the roaring rapids, the roaring uh, falls, which are my words, by the way. So, Obviously. so this is when they start to navigate back upstream. So it took 30 minutes where they find, they found like a little beach. Um, they did have food cause they had prepared to be there for four nights. This is night three. So it's fine. Um, they did also lay out a tarp, which I thought was smart, like a blue tarp. And then they grabbed, they collected white rocks and wrote SOS on, you know, position the rocks in an SOS format, mm-hmm. um, started a fire and they were like, well, here we go. This could be night one of many. We don't know. Um, they climbed into their sleeping bags and, um, made a fire and Curtis stayed up and tended to the fire to keep away the mountain lions. Cause they're very, there's a lot of mountain lions in that area. Um, so they, they, they fall asleep, whatever. So around midnight, they were awakened by a voice from a loudspeaker and the spe- they said, this is search and rescue. You have been found stay put and we'll be back to get you tomorrow morning. So the three of them were rescued the next morning about 10 a.m., which when I was reading that, I was just like, damn, what, like, why not like seven in the morning or whatever, but whatever. So they were rescued, <laughs> at, like, they were rescued at 10 a.m. the next morning. And what they found out was about a quarter mile, quarter mile downstream, two hikers were hiking with their two daughters and they had actually spotted the bright green water bottle in the water mm. floating. And it was actually one of the little girls that that jumped in the water and grabbed the water bottle and brought it back and they read the message in it. So they they ran back to the campground, alerted the manager to call search and rescue. And um, the reason why search and rescue couldn't land that night is because it was too dark and they really weren't sure like how much area they had to land on and all that stuff. So um, the California Highway Patrol 
uh, pilot decided to do the flyover the night before, which, you know, showed up at midnight for them and just let them know that, hey, we know you're here. We're going to come get you in the morning. So it turns out that hikers found the water bottle. And um, that's the only reason they were rescued as quickly as they were rescued. Um, When the helicopter came to pick them up the next day, they were dead asleep. And they suddenly heard the helicopter above them. And they were jumping up and down. They were hugging. They were crying. They were so excited. And um, they each were, the helicopter couldn't land in the gorge. So they were each sent down a line in a safety harness. And one by one had to be picked up out of the gorge and taken to safety. And um, the pilot had said that in his 23 years of rescuing people, this is the first time that they had heard of a rescue because of a message in a bottle. And... um, (laughs) A lot of pieces fell into place that day for them. They're, they think that they would have probably been out there a few more days and they would have run out of food and water at that point. Although I would think the river water may be okay to drink. I'm not really sure how that I mean, it works. Could, I mean, it could still have shit in it. Yeah. I mean, you could still get sick from it probably. Um And then afterwards, about a week after they were rescued, his girlfriend bought him a new water bottle and put a love note in it and gave it to him as a gift as like, you know, first circle stuff. (laughs) I know, I know. Um, After they didn't know the hikers names who actually saved them. But as the story surfaced on like CNN and in the news and all that stuff. Um, they were reunited. They reached out to the hikers who did rescue them and they had a big barbecue to meet each other and to thank them for saving their lives possibly. And, um, Curtis said that it was the greatest moment of his life meeting them because they did save his life and his family's life. So that is the story of Curtis and his family being saved by a message in a bottle. And I just thought that was so cool and fast thinking. Nice. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to terrify you right now. Okay. Did we do that before? No. Did we? No, we didn't do that one before. Okay. Okay. Here's Ah. the deal. We both, me and you both are avid Reader's Digest survival Mm -hmm. story people. And you got to a certain point where you said they put a message in a bottle and chucked it over. And I was like, shit, we've already done this story. But I I think think I probably just read it. I think I just read it. Well, and I almost didn't pick it because it's not. So guys, when we do these stories, like they, like you have to find, it's hard to find the right one because they have to be long enough. They have to have enough detail and content where this Mm -hmm. one was a little shorter than I would like, but I just thought it was such an interesting, I mean, I wouldn't have thought to do that. So I thought it had a good angle, but yeah. So like Jenny and I always, a lot of times pick our stories from Reader's Digest, but I, I had never read this one before, but I can clearly see how you thought we've done it because we're always all over that website. <laughs> yes. So I'm pretty sure I've read it before. And like, yeah, I just got yeah. freaked out in the middle of your story and was like, we done this? What's happening right oh, now? No. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh, oh no, God. no, no, no. Now I am working on a gory one. So I think my oh. next one's going to be a little gory, just a heads up. So. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. Um, okay. I cannot take credit for this next story. Kenny found it and sent it to me. Kenny. So, Kenny coming through. I'll be honest, I forgot what I sent you, so I'm excited <gasps> to hear. Oh, you're you're going to love it. It is exciting. Uh, so, it is the survival story of Charles Jokin. Okay. Uh, Charles Jokin was the now. chief baker 
on yeah. the ti- on the Titanic. So Ooh, okay. Um, so it's a Titanic survival story, and um, the way that he survived is uh, quote unquote thanks to an industrial amount of liquor. Oh yeah, that'll <laughs> that'll save anybody. Oh. Hooray! Okay, so um, there was a an inquest after the Titanic sank, uh, which. You know, like this huge, um, I don't know, ship was supposed to be unsinkable. And so there was like a, um, it was called the British Titanic Inquiry. And they had to kind of question all the survivors about what exactly happened because the unsinkable ship was now at the bottom of the ocean. So some of these excerpts are from his um, questioning by the British Titanic Inquiry. Uh, and I just really enjoyed some of his answers. Um, I can't wait. Let's hear it. Amazing. Uh, so they were grilling this man, uh, again, Charles Jokin. Uh, and I did look up how to say his name cause it's like not spelled like Jokin, but that's how they said on Wikipedia. I'm supposed to say it. Um, so <laughs> this guy was questioning him and said, I know you were drunk during the sinking (laughs) duh (laughs) but they were like intrigued by it they weren't mad they said this is a quote this is very important said the questioner shushing the wigged wreck commissioner and then asked the purpose of this booze related interrogation and he said i think his getting a drink had a lot to do with saving his life so um let's go back charles jokin was a chief baker of the rms titanic um, and he had basically, the reason they, they were so intrigued with him is because he kind of just nonchalantly stepped off the back of the boat as it was sinking. Oh God. Um, <laughs> and like basically 1500 people are around him screaming, panicking, dying. And he just continues to tread water as if not a big deal. He also, after a few hours of being in the water, got fished out by a lifeboat, but he was back at work within a few days. Oh, my gosh. Well, don't they also say, like, not that you should ever drink and drive, but if you're in an mm-hmm. accident and you have had a couple drinks, let's say you're in the passenger seat, you're more likely to not be hurt or die because you're more relaxed? Yes. Yeah. So that has stuff to do with it. But it's a weird thing because the water was so cold. Normally when you drink... Uh, drinking will cause you to hit hypothermia quicker because your blood oh. has rushed to the, I'll tell you in a sec, but okay. your blood isn't where it's supposed to be. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> um, so they said it was uh, almost physiologically impossible uh, that he survived this. Um, he was 33 years old and um, it said, <laughs> again, I have to quote it because it's just the funniest little article. Um because the 33-year-old Englishman had the presence of mind to greet history's greatest maritime disaster by getting smashed. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So they talk about, you know, a lot of times back in the day, um, if you were cold, they'd give you a glass of brandy to warm you up. Um, and so it would cause your body to warm up. Um, and it would also give you the telltale red cheeks of yes. someone who's drinking. Um, and then that's caused by something called vasodilation, 
and that warm blood rushes to the surface of your skin, which makes oh. you feel warm. Okay. The problem yeah, my is always get warm in my, my neck yeah. too. The problem is all that blood has now been rushed away from all your vital organs. Oh, yeah. And so if you do find yourself in a, uh, a freezing situation, um, you don't have anything to protect your organs. And so a lot of times you are more at risk for hypothermia. Didn't so, know that. Okay. Um, they said that the, um, the temperature of the North Atlantic, the night the Titanic sank, was negative two degrees Celsius. Um, so that is two degrees below freezing because Celsius freezing is zero. Uh, that sounds, that's terrifying and yeah. awful. Um, but it said that the water was cold enough that it was able to quickly tighten Jokin's blood vessels and cancel out the effect of the alcohol. Oh, Meaning okay. like, that's why he didn't get hypothermia. Um, he's, uh, there was a doctor who said at low to moderate doses of alcohol, cold will win. Um, but if you have, <laughs> if you have lots of alcohol, then it can be a lifesaver. <laughs> I'm like, amazing. So just be tanked and you'll be good. When, when terrifying, awful things happen, just get wasted. Exactly. It'll get you through. <laughs> um, alcohol is the, is the leading cause of humans getting into fatal situations, including freezing to death. Um, but like you said, now. It also has the re relaxation quality. Um, and so a lot of times that relaxation quality can help in really traumatic situations. So yes, you might be more susceptible to something like hypothermia or something like that, but you're more relaxed in a really traumatic situation where sometimes people die just because of um, panic. Uh, it's that fight or flight thing. People like lose it. Um, so there was a recent study, uh, that looked at 14 years worth of Illinois hospital data, and they found that people who had been stabbed and shot were more likely to survive the more inebriated that they were. Oh, yeah. Which is like weird because I think it, I think alcohol, um, makes your blood thinner. I thought, so you yeah. think you'd bleed out. You think you would. But he said that, um... Patients that are, this is a quote from a doc, uh, I think a doctor, uh, Geisbrecht. Uh, he said, in an ER, cold patients who are really drunk can walk in and they're conscious at a temperature that they shouldn't be. So like, again, it's like the more alcohol, the more likely you are to survive these traumatic events, whether it be stabbing, gunshot, cold, whatever. Um, so anyway, um, this is the story of what happened to Jokin that night. Uh, he heard the, he was actually off work. So he wasn't working in the bakery at that point. He had gone down to his uh, bunk and he felt the collision with the iceberg. Oh, and okay. so he, he left, he leapt out of his bunk and he started um, telling his staff to get out and get all the bread to stock the lifeboats. And uh, in the article I read on Wikipedia, I believe it said each person in the bakery, like each man that was in the bakery was taking at least 40 pounds of bread up to the, um, the rescue boats. And I was what? like, why? Um, like they, I, you can't take that with you. Listen, no, no, no. They, they had to fill each lifeboat each with like 40 pounds of bread to try and keep oh. these people alive. Yeah. So it wasn't for them. It was for the people <laughs> on the lifeboats. <laughs> I thought they 
are just being fucking stingy. No, no, no. no. Jokin said, like what a bunch of dicks. No, Jokin was like, take all the bread, get it up to the lifeboats, so that when we fill them up with people, there's food for them to eat. Are you on board with me now? <laughs> Got it. <laughs> He's not being a dick. He's being very it's the helpful. wine. Got it. <laughs> um, okay, so, uh, but I was like, I'll take forty pounds of bread. I oh, love yeah. me some carbs up in this joint. So, Give me some um, olive oil to dip it in. Mm, I'm set. Mm, 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 mm. So uh, they load the lifeboats full of bread and biscuits. I was like, I don't know if they're oh, English, so I don't know if they meant cookies or like actual biscuits, but either way, I'm in Let's for the bread. Like it's biscuits. I'm in for the biscuits. I'm in for the cookies. I prefer biscuits though. Anyway, me too. <laughs> it's not about me. <laughs> right. We're talking about joking. Uh, so he had a place on one of the lifeboats because, um, he would like, as a a chief, uh, I guess person on the ship, he was the chief baker. He was considered, um, to be a captain of one of the lifeboats. Well, he refused to get on it because there were already semen on there. And I don't mean the swimmers. I mean, got it. I mean, you know, guys who work on the ship. So he said no. And then there were women and children who were freaking the fuck out who were like, I'm not getting on. The Titanic is safer than these lifeboats. And so they physically started throwing women and children into the lifeboats. Oh, God. But it likely saved their lives. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Jokin said, we threw them in. That's his quote. Great. We made them. Huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So... The top deck was getting um, cleared of lifeboats. It was around 1.30 a.m. Uh, lots of panic was happening um, with the lifeboat, lifeboats almost all full and in the water. A lot of people thought, shit, like, that's the end. So uh, Jokin, at this point, grabbed um, some booze and started tipping them back. Because that's what you got to do. That's what you do. I, yeah. I would do the same thing. So you got to be drinking. Uh, and I'm sorry, before he came up to start chucking women and children onto boats, he had already started drinking. So he was, he was drinking before he started throwing people into boats. Then he threw people into boats. Then he went back down to his cabin, started drinking some more. While he was drinking, water started coming in through his cabin door. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, so um, he decided that uh, he should probably get it on up to the deck again. So after he had nursed his drink a little bit more, uh, Jokin splashed up to the deck where he took it upon himself to start throwing deck chairs into the ocean. And uh, he had told the inquiry board that it was because he thought if he could fill the water with flotation devices, it might help people survive. So he threw chairs in the water so people could cling to them this to guy try is and just live. Mr. Helpful. Yeah, like, Mr. Mr. Drunk ass helpful. And I yeah. Love it. I mean he's <laughs> like drunk and still still looking out for everybody else. Mm. Mm. So at this point he's a bit parched. You know, because <laughs> when you're like when you're you know when you go to the club and you drink and you're dancing you and you're hydrate. sweating. You gotta yeah. hydrate, you know? I'm like doing a little like club dance right now. You can't see me, but anyway, yeah, you get hot. And parched from drinking. So he went back to uh, his pantry to get himself a drink of water. Um, And then he was standing on the stern when the ship broke in half. As you guys know, the ship itself, as it was sinking, uh, the pressure was too great. The ship broke in half. Yeah. 
his conversation with the inquiry board was, uh, yeah, it didn't feel like much. Because he was drunk as fuck. Yeah, he doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> he said there was no great shock or anything. That was his quote. <laughs> there was no great shock or anything, quote unquote. Just the boat splitting in half. <sighs> so um, what he did is, could, do you remember in Titanic when um, Rose and Jack go all the way to the very tip top of yes. the boat and they, hang on to, and they hang on to the railing? Yes. And it starts like going down into the water. Yes. But they're on the very back of the boat. That part that, scared me so much. Yeah. That is what real life drunk uh, Baker Jokin did. No way. He got onto the stern he rail of the ship. Railing. And at exactly 2.20 a.m., he rode it into the ocean <laughs> like an elevator, being the oh. last survivor to hit the water. Wow, but wait a minute. Wouldn't the force of it going under take you with it? That's what they did in the movie, but I have no idea. He says he barely got his head wet. Oh, well, I mean, he would know because he was he, there. He lived. I mean, he was also hoisted, so who knows? <laughs> I, I, but when you sober up by that time, I don't like, know. I don't, he was really drunk. Um, I would also like to point out that exactly at 2.20 a.m. when the Titanic finally sunk, uh, that is also when White Star Lines stopped paying all the crew members. Oh, my God. <laughs> they were just <laughs> like, it sunk at 2.20. No more wages for you. No overtime for you. you had to, I don't care that you had to swim in the fucking cold. Um, okay. Oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, so the first stage of cold water immersion is known as cold shock. So this is something that is very real and um, is a reason that a lot of people actually died in the sinking of the Titanic. Um, I think one of us might have been you did the story of Charles Lightoller. Oh, yeah. So his uh, commentary to the inquiry was, uh, Titanic second officer, uh, Charles Lightoller said, it's like a thousand knives being driven into one's body. Yeah. And the common side effects of this cold shock are gasping and hyperventilation. Um, so in reality, cold shock generally only lasts for about 90 seconds, but that didn't, a lot of people didn't know that when this was happening. In fact, a lot of people at the time, and even today, which I was like, who thinks this today? There was a myth that persisted that the human body cannot withstand more than a few minutes in the ocean. Wait, just the ocean in general, not... Just like the ocean. At 2.30 in the morning with negative two degrees. No, nope, just the ocean. Oh, that was a thing. Okay. Yep. Um, okay. So... Um, Cold shock ends after 90 seconds. That's that hyperventilating. That's the like tightening. It's the little knives killing you slowly. That lasts 90 seconds, which is a long time for that to happen. That's a long time um, you're going through. Yeah. And then it would take the average adult about 10 minutes before their whole body would go numb. But it would take at least an hour before your heart would stop. Okay. So you got a, you got a full hour of complete yeah. torture. Amazing. Well, no, once you go numb, just whatever. I know. Like, I think I'll. I mean, if you're drunk, who cares? But if you're not drunk, he didn't your care. Body's going numb. That's the best part of this whole thing. He didn't give a <laughs> shit. He wasn't on a boat. No, no. Okay. So, um, 
But that's the reason a lot of people actually died because when they fell into the water and it was so cold and that cold shock hit them, they panicked. And so a lot of them drowned because they dramatic, like they were so dramatic when they hit the water and it hurt to some degree or to a lot of degree (laughs) um, that them flailing about, they lost body temperature more quickly and they drowned. So very fast. Just be calm. You have an hour. And it, and you'll go numb eventually, like 10 right. minutes. You just have you to wait 10 it. minutes. Exactly. It's fine. Um, so Jokin had made sure that he had his life belt on. So life belt, life vest to mm-hmm. us today. Um, and he, he basically said that he didn't really notice much. I was just paddling and treading water. I was like, this guy sounds amazing. This guy rides the back of a, or the, a boat into the ocean straight down and just doesn't notice anything. Mm-hmm. The boat splits in half, and he's like, eh, it was just a little, a little shock. <laughs> well, and they think a big part of why he was so nonchalant about all this is that all the alcohol he had in his system really helped to uh, increase his courage. Like, he, yeah. he wasn't as scared as everyone else because he was so wasted he didn't care. Crazy. I'm like, great. That's and, amazing. And then, and then National Post said, um, quote, unquote, it would also decrease his feeling of cold so he may indeed have been more fearless and not feeling as cold and therefore as panicked um so without knowing it he had become a textbook example of how to survive a shipwreck um and part of this too is because he held on to the stern like railing and waited for the ship to go down instead of jumping into the water or being like pushed in with the part of the ship that had broken off first he had a very delayed immersion versus some of the other people that like were tossed in before the ship fully sank. Um, so he was basically the last to get wet. Um, he also managed to stay calm and strategize a way to get out of the water. So um, I thought this was interesting. It's a tragedy that's seen a lot by first responders is that disaster victims panic and then they die because of that. Like it's ridiculous. Like there was a hiker who's walking right past the trail that would get them out of the forest and then they die or a fire victim who keeps pushing on a door rather than pulling it in order to exit a building. Oh, the thought of that is just so, you know, just like these disasters that could be prevented by just one simple, like calm down and look at it before you make a decision. Yeah. Um, so he's joking, spent two hours floating in darkness. And then when dawn, um, broke, he was able to see and he saw an overturned lifeboat. And so he grabbed onto that and was holding on. Um, and then um, another lifeboat came and pulled him onto their ship because it was right side up. Um, and then a rescue ship, the RMS Carpathia, uh, pulled him on board and he was essentially fine. He said, my feet were swelled, <laughs> but otherwise good to go. I'm all set. I'm good here. So um, they said the only thing that he could have done better was put on some extra layers of clothing because even wet layers help to conserve loss of body heat. So even if you're going to be soaking wet, it's better to have on more layers because at least they oh, stop really? heat from leaving your body. Yeah. Okay. I didn't, I would not have thought that. So get tanked and drink. I mean, get tanked and then put on a lot of layers and then your life vest. And, and then, then you're jump. good. And then you're good. Oh, I'm sorry. And then wait for the ship to sink. <laughs> And then ride the back of it as it goes into the middle of the of Lake Erie or wherever exactly. it is. Exactly, exactly. Uh, he returned to ship baking 
and he actually worked on some uh, second uh, World War II troop ships as a baker. Um, and he didn't give a lot of interviews uh, because he knew he was known as the drunk baker. <laughs> uh, he, his character was featured in the blockbuster movie from 1997, Titanic. And in more recent times, uh, his saga was chronicled in the 2016 episode of the series Drunk History. Oh, cool. <laughs> so um, they said it's, it's impossible for scientists to predict who's going to survive these kind of disasters. But he said some people just tend to give up very quickly. Um, and other people, you just can't seem to kill them. So they aren't 100% sure why he lived and didn't suffer very many consequences. Um, but they do believe the alcohol had a lot to do with it in keeping him calm, keeping him warm, and, um, you know, all that good stuff. So anyway, that is the star story of Charles Jokin. That's crazy. Great. <laughs> I, I never heard his I had never heard his story before, and I didn't realize he was in the Titanic either. Or, like, his role was played in the Titanic. Um, I'm just really excited that he was that drunk. Good for him. Yeah, good for him. I hope I'm that drunk when I go down. Yep. Right? Yay! Declan just got home. Hi! Oh my god, so cute. Okay, mommy's gonna be on this call and then I'll come get you. <laughs> All right. Kenny! Yeah? What you got? What you got? Oh, okay, so... A Vermont farmer returns what that a skydiver lost during his jump? Marijuana. Okay, okay. Wait, who recovered it? A Vermont farmer. A uh, cell phone. The guy's prosthetic leg. Oh. 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 Wait, how are you jumping out of a plane if you have a prosthetic leg? I mean, they can still jump and walk, you know. I know, but when you land, like that's a very, that's a really hard landing. No, uh, I think he was with a instructor, so oh, like tandem style. Okay, yes. got it. Okay, and, uh, I was thinking he by himself. Just didn't like, notice during the jump that one of his legs became loose and fell off. Aww. So he oh, put a post no. on Facebook, and Farmer Joe found it in his soybean field. That's that's great because those are really expensive, and they're like custom fit to you too. Yeah. Wow, that's wow. crazy. Amazing. Wow. I like that we I mean well Danelle was immediately like marijuana. They said I just the leg pictured... only had a few scratches on it and it's still in perfect condition. That's wow. wow. That's nice good he found nice it. landing. Did yeah. he did he say he noticed when it fell off or he didn't notice till they landed? Uh he said where did he... he said he didn't realize he lost it because he was so excited during the jump. So I'm assuming he didn't realize till he landed or until like the parachute went off, probably. Yeah. Oh my God. I could see the parachute going off and him looking down being like, oh him shit. Like, oh, <laughs> I'm missing something. <laughs> Oops. Aww. Well, I also pictured like, I don't know if I ever skydive, I'd have to get like high before or drunk before. Mm -hmm. Maybe not too drunk, but I would have to have some like type of. Getting high or drunk before would make it worse almost. Yeah, I, I feel know. like that I'd, might make me nauseous. I'd be or so nervous. paranoid as hell. I don't know. I'd be so, yeah, maybe not marijuana. Maybe just a shot of tequila yeah. or something. There you go. There you yeah. go. Yeah. Good talk. Good talk. <laughs> now I'm that glad we know we what our, our game plan is. I'm glad we worked through those details. Oh, good. Good, good, good. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, That's crazy. 
Well, Mm. thanks for tuning in for another episode of Sip Survivor Pete. We'll see you guys next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.